You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. I thought it would be helpful to share perspectives from citizens on the ground. Or other citizens, I hate that phrase on the ground, it's as if somehow we are elevated and they're, you know, they're somewhere else. This is a view from, uh, and perspectives from citizens. And so we have a debating platform called Debating Europe, and we um, have over 1.2 million unique vi- uh, visitors on it. Uh, we debate issues of the day, everything from migration, environment, energy, climate, everything. And so we thought it would be helpful just to kind of give you a sense of what people are thinking about this issue. So... Very poignant statement about integration and hate. So you have Alicia from the Philippines. Communication, mutual respect and open mind really helps. Key issues which are often lacking even in the political discussions, I feel. Um, If we had a bit of communication, mutual respect and an open mind, we might be further ahead politically in Europe potentially on this issue. From Ireland, it is for migrants to integrate, not for Europe to integrate migrants. Migrants should be allowed to retain their own traditional values and heritage, but they must first must set themselves first as citizens of the country they've become a part of, and then whatever religion or culture they come from. So that whole thing about what it means to integrate, is it a two-way street or is it a one-way street? Constantly part of this debate, um, and it has been historically, it's not new. We've witnessed this over time. Feels like anyone that's not 100% in agreement with immigration is labelled far right, which means that eventually even moderates end up radicalised, which actually speaks to the whole thing about populism and what's been happening across Europe and elsewhere, that people feel that actually um, the debate is so uh, smothered that even those in the middle of the margins or of not being at the far end feel they move uh, and then vote for unfortunate um, parties, is all I can say. Portugal. When they come to the front, they should adopt French culture, French laws, and become French people. If they don't, they should leave. You can see how kind of emotionally charged this whole debate is. It takes, integration takes a long time. Wolfgang from Germany. It's measured in generations, not in months or years. A very, very thoughtful, I think, insightful point about integration. We lose sight of that very often and very quickly. So, I'm going to now hand over to Jacques to make his presentation. Thank you very much. It's on there. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Uh, first question, who is Belgium? Can you raise your hand? So I can see that we're pretty much 60% uh, migrants in the room, so it seems that the topic is actually well-defined. Now, uh, again, look at my title, uh, Looking Being No Emotion. Obviously, it's not a joke. It's actually an important problem, an issue. It's about emotions. What I would like to do is set the stage for the discussion of the panel, which is uh, trying to get the facts as to what exactly is the migration impact? And I understand for migration there is integration. There are two different uh, sides of the same coin. But I think it's important to get the facts right and at least try to get out of the emotions, get the facts. And again, uh, if uh, you got uh, the, the courage to do that, there are two reports in your handout where you got quite a heavy analysis of McKinsey on the topic. So I will try to give you a snapshot of some of the facts just to make sure that it gives a background for this uh, debate. So, first of all, we know what the media and yourself, you, sometimes you think about the problem, which is today we've got a trending trend of refugees and asylum 
And again, today we have pretty much 24 million of them uh, in 2015, pretty much coming from, you know, one center of gravity, which is Syria, Syria to Turkey to Lebanon and so on. So we all know that. But uh, again, let's try to get the emotions out of that and let's look at the, at, at the right numbers. First of all, if you look at the world in terms of economic flows and globalization, it's quite important to realize that, in fact, these 25 million refugees, that's the red dot on the right-hand side, it's actually only 10% of the stock of people living abroad, which we define as the migrant, 247 million. And again, if you look at that, uh, again, we can go to the right-hand side, some of the thing of the pride that we have, at least as European, at least, which is that we have created you know, a program for students to go abroad. It's five million of them. So again, look at the numbers in the first instances. We talk about 25 million of refugees today. Yes, it's growing, but it's only 10% of the people uh, being migrants. Now, the second point is that look at the flow of these people, the way they move. In fact, the micro flows in terms of population is actually only 0.6% of the total people. So yes, obviously, we have a lens, and the lens is that if we go to big cities, if you go to New York, you will see a lot of migrants. But at the end of the day, from a global perspective, it's actually quite small. If you look at the trade flows as a comparison, trade flows is pretty much 30% of the GDP. The data flow, i.e., you know, what you send as a picture across Facebook and Netflix and so on, is 12%. Indirect investment is 8, uh, sorry, foreign direct investment is 8%. So again, we magnify possibly a problem from a lens of something which is obviously important on day-to-day, but in the big scheme of things, it's actually quite small. And it's important to have that because a lot of people have a bias of selection facing the problem in front of them. They just don't look at the full picture. So point number one, yes, it's important, but people are rather immobile. What is the bottom line? And in fact, in our report, we look at that. And the bottom line, again, from a pure economic standpoint, is that we believe that these 250 million cross-border mig uh, mig migrants in 2015, they represent pretty much the 3 to 3.5 percent of the global population. But in fact, they represent, in terms of GDP, 9 percent of the GDP. And in net value, they represent pretty much 3 trillion of value, i.e. 4 percent of the GDP. And by the way, this is only the start. If we do a few good things and you integrate correctly and you measure integration, this number will move from the 3 trillion possibly to the 4 trillion. So, in fact, we should look at the problem not as a liability, but possibly as, a pro uh, as an issue of opportunity. Uh, let's continue that, and uh, again, a few facts. It's a matter of choice. Again, we tend to talk about this 10% of the refugee, as I said, okay, the 24, 25 million. If you look at the people who actually travel across borders, 90% actually this, uh, do it by choice. No, by choice meaning they want to move, possibly they do it because of salary difference and the like. But again, that's another fact to have in mind is that on the 90% fair, it's enough to say that a lot of them have medium to low skill, and most of the time that absorption gonna take some time. So let's not obviously look at the pictures as only rosy. It's important that obviously the type of skill, the medium low is obviously possibly much higher. And that's one of the reasons why they move. They move because they believe our country will give them an opportunity to work. Point uh, 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 number two, we discussed that, so I will not go too far on this one so that we, we keep our point. Uh, the second point to remember as well, it's not only value to us, it's value back 
to the country where people are coming, which we call remittance, uh, if they earn a salary, this, this thing go back into their own countries. And again, that was not accounted for in my three trillion. It's again a 600 billion of value moving back to these countries. And again, this 600 mil, uh, 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 billion coming to the GDP of these countries is quite important because at the end of the day, if these countries are actually having money, it's a visible less probability of a new crisis somewhere. So again, this is quite important to have that in mind. Uh, two other points to have in mind as well. Uh, we're all afraid that a migrant will possibly take your job or will take an opportunity from you. In fact, we've looked at so many studies, we've done our own analysis, and we found a striking fact, which is on average, there is no real pressure on your wage coming from the migrant. Okay? And yes, in some cases, there is impact on native unemployment, which is the irony of the studies. In fact, the people who are most affected by a new migrant in a country is actually people that are second-generation migrant in the country themselves, and not you in particular. Uh, and I want to continue on that, but just again, not having only the rosy picture. It's important to understand that the question is not the opportunity. It's also the fact that this opportunity will obviously build up across the year, and it takes time. So the question is not the magnitude, it's also the time it takes to absorb. And the facts are the facts today. A lot of these migrants sometimes are not necessarily uh, being absorbed in the, in the workforce quite fast. It takes up to six to ten years to actually have them absorbed. And the facts are the facts, and I want to make sure that you have the facts in front of you. This is true that if you look at who is absorbed in the market, that's a fact as well that uh, you know, countries or migrants coming from the MENA countries, possibly for Saudi, uh, Asia, have a lower probability to be absorbed. And the facts of the matter, the 10% of refugees that we start to see uh, uh, these days are actually coming much more from these regions, which magnify the lens of the fear that we can have. Uh, conclusion uh, is that I want you to get three aspects of my presentation. First of all, we should not be worried. We should first get a cold vision on the numbers. And the number is that labor mobility is good. Second element I wanted to say is that that mobility, however, is good, but take times. It can take 10 years. And obviously 10 years is possibly an adjustment time that most of us, we don't like to accept too much because we're not necessarily the kind of species that are going to stay that long and waiting for Godot to come to us. So yes, it's a matter of how can we uh, facilitate and absorb faster on that. Three, the reality is that we are all human, and we know that today there are frictions. Integration is a complex problem. This being said, I also believe that if there is such a high productivity and the economic impact is quite high, we believe as well that, as my last message, uh, migration is an economic problem like anything else. It can be managed. And in fact, we have looked at that in detail. McKinsey itself has worked quite extensively with the German governments to manage the process of an integration of close to one to two million migrants these days in Germany. And in fact, we come to our responsibility as well. There are three things that we can manage, and it's also all social responsibility to make it happen. First of all, it's all about housing, healthcare, and education. It's also the fact that companies can actually have active labor market policies to make sure to absorb these people. And finally, we all know that if today there is political fear, 
it's important that civil engagements counterbalance the power of the fear that we have across migration. The total of these three things, most of the time, we believe, cannot up to one trillion of value in GDP. Where does it come from? There are not more people coming. It's simply the fact that, as you remember, it takes 10 years for people to be absorbed. If we can reduce that to a matter of two years or three years, that's one trillion of GDP growth more in the economy. So I think I don't want to put a, you know, a perspective which is too rosy, but it's, it's, it says that from the facts and the economic fact, the benefit cost analysis is possibly more on the long-term benefit than the cost. Today, I think we should also have the perspective of what is the short-term cost versus the lower benefit. That's a trade-off that we should analyze. But beware that whatever short term we take, the long term is actually where tomorrow we should be proud of for our kids and for everyone else. Thank you. You reinforced the point about perception being um, far more powerful than the reality. When you think of those facts, when you think about uh, some of the kind of common sense issues about actually integration takes time and that you reap benefits in the long term, um, yet our, our reality in terms of politics and debate currently couldn't be further from the truth in terms of really creating this huge bubble of uh, information that would suggest that actually the problem of numbers is far greater than what you've just presented. Okay, I'm going to um, start going kind of, let's take a, a very local perspective and, and I'm keen to uh, ensure that you know we'll, we'll, we'll zip through the uh, con contributions and then open up to questions I'm sure you have lots of questions in mind but I would like to ask Yara first who's uh, uh, the founder of a lovely lovely uh, project called, um, from Syria with love you've got details in your packs about what they've done so I'm not going to tell you here I'll just say, we'll waste time in that respect but you'll hear a little bit about it and I suppose what I'm keen to understand from you uh, Yara is what you're doing in terms of your particular project um, is it transferable? Can it happen elsewhere? Or are they a set of unique circumstances that have led to the success of what you do? Actually, it's very easy to implement, and it's implementable anywhere, anytime. Uh, it's just, it came from a passion, from a need, from a gap in the market, and uh, it was actually um, an idea to give women, housewives especially, an opportunity to find a new purpose in the new society. Uh, which I believe uh, housewives to be the most difficult to integrate because they have no reason to integrate. They're never going to look for a job or they're never going to need to go outside their comfort zone. So giving the woman um, a very easy-to-do job, which, uh, which, which is something they do all the time, which is cooking, and a way to make a, a kind of make them themselves uh, businessmen and uh, tradesmen. So the idea is implementable anywhere, anytime. So it was really not something I, I didn't rediscover the wheel or reinvent it, but it was just giving a purpose to the ladies. And uh, it could be with cooking, it could be with sewing, it could be with singing, it could be with anything. And it's just something that was for for them very far from their you know mindset. They said we can never be so famous, so we could never make it happen. But I think why it worked was because uh, they needed someone to believe in, someone who was in their shoe one time. Uh, and I myself was a refugee, so I told them that it's easy, we can do it together. So the idea is they do need the role model, the, the mediator, someone that was in their shoe one time but has successfully integrated to look up to, and then uh, the willingness to continue. So in terms of scalability, 
I think it's easy. You can start it tomorrow. Uh, I started it with a Facebook page, so it's not so difficult. Mm. Uh, it also doesn't need any budget at all. That's what I was going to ask you. I, guess yeah, I mean, I opened a Facebook page, uh, and in one week, people were calling to make orders for catering. Uh, and so at the beginning, it was just, you know, uh, filling in expenses. But at the, it started now. Today, I'm employing them uh, uh, per hour. So any piano, piano, like they say, you know, step by step, it's going to happen. Uh, but it's really easy to implement, super easy. And uh, a friend, uh, another group here in Brussels have started the same concept. And I hope that I can contage more cities in Belgium and outside. It has already happened in the U.S., uh, in Canada. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of it is that it's so simple. Mm -hmm. It's really just cooking. Uh, and cooking, you can talk about politics, you can talk about society, you can gossip over eating, you can do everything. So it's, uh, it's simple but very impactful indeed. Excellent. How many women are participating? Uh, we're four now. Four. Great. I hope we go to 50, but... Uh, Step by step. Indeed, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank I'm going so to go, go over to Paul. Paul, um, slightly different angle, but the same approach in terms of passion. You had a passion for something, but tell us a little bit about. And how, the same question actually is: Is it replicable? Is it scalable? Can you? Can it happen elsewhere in Europe? What um, you're doing? I've seen how difficult it was for uh, European to be together mm. because there are many differences. So I don't know. But maybe some people can be um, uh, influenced by what I would say mm -hmm. and, and start it in their own country. Uh, what we do is something specific uh, up to now. When we talk about refugees, we talk about two things. We talk about admission and we talk about integration. Mm -hmm. Both things, the European were controlling that. So we are not thinking from the perspective of refugees themselves. So um, we are kind of rebellious, and we say every refugee has a talent. Mm -hmm. So we are trying to integrate refugees with labor, but not saying what the companies want, but saying what the refugees bring in. So it's kind of turning it around and trying to make people be valuable in a society from the perspective they give. Because most of the people are talking about integration. Mm -hmm. They ask people to change. And believe me, when you have been eating crocodile your whole life, and you come here and people tell you tell you, you have to eat cow and something, it's difficult. So we <laughs> turn it around, we turn it around, and we say everybody has a talent. And there is one specific mm -hmm. uh, uh, I would like to share with you. This idea is not from the government, it's not from the civil society, it's from companies. Mm. When in 2015, people from all over the world, from Syria, were coming to Europe, they were kind of panic. And in Holland, it's funny, they listened to what Merkel said. We can do it. So the companies, they came together and they say, we have to share our responsibility. Mm. So what we will do, uh, we believe that integrating for refugees goes smoothly when they have a job, we will give them a job. So I have at this present moment the most beautiful job in the world because I'm giving people a job from what they can and the companies I'm trying to convince 
not to think about what they want, but what they need from the refugees. Mm -hmm. And it's working. So it can be everywhere, but it takes something from the people who are receiving refugees of migrants. We have to change our mind. Europe, that's my advice, mm. we didn't uh, reach the end of history so that we, we cannot learn anything. You can still learn from a Congolese, like I am, and if you agree that you can learn, it makes you more inclusive, and when you, you, you approach me inclusively, I will integrate faster than when you approach me as a stranger. Like, we cannot be together. And one last point I would like to, to share with you. Okay. The Convention of Geneva were not, was now never to be economics. So now we are looking for um, economics um, um, uh, argument to explain that migrants, uh, they are welcome. So it's like giving up to the first fathers of uh, uh, the Geneva Convention who were not talking about money. They were talking about values. So uh, you said something, or you said something in the beginning that uh, 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 they are facts, they are emotion. I come from Africa. I cannot not be emotional. So because of the way people look at me, because the way people think that I can't participate or not, so I say we still need to go back to those values which were not economic. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. You make some, you know, some very valid points about the mindset needing to change. And often integration is in the eye of the beholder. It's about how you approach it and what you see it as, unfortunately. And for too long, it's been seen as something which is to be done to and to be assuaged in terms of political terms and economic terms. But what you're doing, I suppose, is that... And it's quite interesting that this is also a question of leadership because you either have personal leadership or leadership from the private sector that actually believes that this is an important thing to do. And it's unfortunate in the political debate, the private sector has been actually quite quiet. In, and often politicians are looking around saying, how can we, because can, there's this thing about the jobs being taken. And actually you need, political, you, need, you need captains of leadership to stand up in Europe and say, you know, migration's a good thing for the economy, but we'll wait and see whether we can muster that. I want to move across to the municipal response, so the context in which Paul works is, you know, uh, one of you know, your area. So I'm really looking forward to hearing, you know, about how you, I mean, everyone's been hearing obviously about the elections and, you know, the outcome was a sense of relief despite increasing numbers to a certain extent, but you're working in a very difficult political environment, yet you've made things happen. How? Yes, well, I think so. Also because of people like Paul, he's doing his wonderful job in Amsterdam. Um, I think we, we came from a situation where our national policy in the Netherlands was all about discouraging people to come to the Netherlands. Mm. And when the refugee crisis, as everybody calls it, uh, happened, uh, that didn't work anymore because people were coming. The trains were coming in the Amsterdam Central Station with refugees, mainly from Syria. Uh, and whereas the national government was still trying to discourage it, the municipality, so Amsterdam thought, but these people are here mm. uh, and we have to do something. Uh, the other part of the policy was that it took a very long time. When you came in as an asylum seeker, you went to in one of the centers, often very far away from our big cities, uh, and that you had to spend one, two years there doing absolutely nothing. Uh, and that's, of course, wrong, because if, if people are there to stay, and we know that the Syrian refugees came 
to get their permit and to stay in our society, then you should use the time uh, and let people uh, you know, uh, be educated, work, learn the language. Mm. That's a very, very important thing. So we wanted to shorten that period of time as much as we could and at the same time provide the, the necessary education. So what we did as a city was propose to the government that we would like to take in people, to actually have them in Amsterdam, to house them in Amsterdam, uh, to provide them with a really tailor-made program, so not treat everybody the same, because people are not the same. People are individuals. They have different talents. They all have talents, but they're all different. We have people who do speak uh, English, who have uh, higher education already in their country of origin. We have people who, uh, who are illiterate. So there are so big differences. So making this tailor-made approach is very important, I think, that we did that. And the other part, is, of course, is, is teaming up. Uh, with, with partners, so with education institutions, with the universities, with the schools, uh, and also with uh, employers. So, uh, and they're not saying, so we're looking for uh, 2,000 jobs, but really diving into the companies, looking for wh what sectors are interesting, IT, of course, the health sector, the hospitality sector, where, where people are really, there's a shortage of labor mm. in Amsterdam. Mm. The refugees, they, they're really interested in taking these jobs, and that is where, where also Paul comes in and where you can actually make the match. And I think it, it, has, it has really worked. Of course, you still see the numbers of people, depending on, on social welf welfare, coming uh, to Amsterdam. It's, it's too high and it will take time, so you cannot change it in a day or overnight. But I think this is the right approach and in a couple of years' time, I hope that we will really see the results. Tell me, was the conversation difficult when you said you wanted to bring in more numbers and have a tailored approach? If you can say in this environment, uh, well, yes, share I, I, with I, us. I, I must say, in uh, Amsterdam, sometimes it's different from the rest uh, of uh, the country. So I think in Amsterdam there was a wide support, but of course you always have to be in a dialogue. You have to explain to the people of Amsterdam what you are doing, why you're doing it. There is, for instance, a housing shortage in Amsterdam, yeah. not only for the refugees, but yeah. also for students and also for ordinary Amsterdamers. Uh, uh, so yeah, you, you, really, you have to face that reality and you have to explain to people uh, uh, also by using numbers and facts but also by using emotion I think uh, what you're doing and why it's good for everyone Great, thank you very much and I'm, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions and if not I've got some more but I'm not going to hog the floor I'm going to move to um, Belinda from the Commission and so you know all eyes are on you to, and it always is it's an unfortunate day for Brits both of us have shared the fact that I hope it's not too irritated to hear my, my accent on the day that Theresa May offered her red letter to the, to the, uh, to the European Union uh, but you know there we are a sideshow to a certain extent but uh, material to this conversation to a certain extent um, tell us from your perspective um, how I mean there's the, there's the ease there's a difficulty of trying to get political buy-in to some of these approaches of coherence. But from your perspective and what you're doing, tell me kind of some of the things that you've been able to focus on and get buy-in for to move the integration and mobility agenda. Okay. Um, first of all, yes, it's a sad day and some of us will be third country nationals in two years Indeed. or so. So integration is particularly now relevant to us. Just to make some general remarks, I mean, it was very interesting to have the scene set. I think there's always a danger with the costs and benefits argument because... As we know, the costs, I mean, there's the short term and the long term, and also the costs and benefits aren't shared equally. So, you know, it may be globally beneficial for a country or a region to bring in mobile labour, but the, the effects are different at local level. And that's, I think, we've seen is why we have the sort of level of populism 
that we have. Um, I was also interested in your statistics. Um, and I, I want to just give a few stats, if I may, on the EU position. We're, we're focusing on refugees in some of the discussion today, but um, I want to take a slightly broader view, more mm -hmm. generally, about the integration of third country nationals, because that is our focus. I mean, there, there needs to be refugee-specific actions, but I think also um, integration needs to look at um, the position of third country nationals, regardless of why they came here. About 4% of the EU population are third country nationals. Now, interestingly, um, as you showed for the global figure, only about 10% of those have come for, uh, as refugees. Um, so generally the figures of the EU are slightly below. I mean, obviously our figures are a little bit dated. So for the 2015, um, the, if we take one proxy, which is the, number, the reasons why people who got residence permits had come here, 7% were for asylum. Family reunification, joining, joining somebody, is the biggest reason why people are here, at least a third. Second reason is they come for work. Third reason, mm. they come to study. And, of course, the reason you've come here has a big impact on how you then integrate. If you've come to work, um, then it's going to be a lot easier. Um, but the, and that has a, you can see that reflected in the, the employment rate. I mean, it goes without saying it's always worse for women. Um, and I think particularly the, the project you're addressing is addressing the, the issue of the spouse who may have followed somebody and then isn't entering the normal labour market. But we estimate that the ref refugee employment rate is about 10% behind the others. I mean, to an extent, they haven't chosen to come here, whereas people who come to work or study have chosen <coughs> to come here. And on average, and I think reflects your figures, we estimate it takes 15 to 20 years to close that gap. And for those of you who haven't already seen the Commission's um, Employment and Social Development in Europe report in December, um, there's a very, very good chapter in there on the labour integration um, of refugees with lots and lots of stats. Um, so why does this matter? Well, frankly, it's in the EU's own economic interest to accelerate the integration process, to make sure that people who have come, for whatever reason, are actually able to play a full part in the economy. I leave aside, obviously, the moral and social arguments, which should be self-evident, but we're talking about mm. cost of benefit. I mean, the demographic arguments, um, I mean, it sometimes seems a bit far off, but decline in working age population, if we don't have migrants... 17.5 million by 2025, 30 million by, by 2030. And I think that's always an important argument to, to sell. I mean, if you say to people, Europe needs more migrants, um, you know, they might not agree with you. If you say we need more skills, then that helps to make the argument both for bringing in skilled workers or people whose skills can be developed and also ensuring that we fully tap into the skills of third country nationals who are already here. And this is... This has been why the EU um, presented an action plan last year on integration. Now, we're you know, we certainly don't have um, all the answers. I mean, what we're trying to do is to synthesise very good things that have been done in um, cities like Amsterdam and looking at what are some of the um, areas where we in the Commission can help and also how we can help with money. Um, and coordination is a key issue. Within the Commission, we have strengthened our internal coordination so that the different policy areas, education and culture, um, employment, research and development, looking at how our measures specifically support um, the integration of third country nationals and making sure that 
everyone's aware of those, and particularly where there are funding opportunities. Okay. And in the same way, we also improve the coordination with member states. I chair a network of uh, member states' representatives, the, the key integration civil servant in each uh, member state. We had a meeting yesterday, but we also invited representatives of local and regional authorities. And that really did live that meeting, what do, you, what, do you guys, what do you guys and girls talk about when you meet? Well, yesterday we were particularly talking, um, thanks to listening to Amsterdam and Athens, about the um, urban agenda on partnership, which I'm mm. sure will be spoken about. But also what was very interesting was to get into talking about the, um, how you make integration happen. I mean, what are the different governance levels? I know mm -hmm. it sounds a bit boring, but... No, no. Um, we, you know, because the EU needs to work with the member states, we expect member states to have national strategies on integration. Um, but frankly, if they're not fully involved in the local and regional level, then it's not going to work. If they're not involving the host community and also the micro community, it's not going to work. The two-way process is key, key to all of this. Um, we also need to make sure, I mean, from both at national level and at EU level, there is dedicated funding to support the um, integration of third country nationals, but equally that other funding instruments at the EU level, mm. the European Social Fund, the Regional Development Absolutely, Fund, yeah. can be tapped into for in integration. I mean, I mean, it's a classic sort of approach of mainstreaming plus specific actions. And how is that conversation going done? Is, is there an is there well, open ear to saying, because I was going to say, yes, you've got the EIB, EIDF, yes, ESF, all no, of that. that we've done a lot in the last two years right. um, since President Juncker announced in one of the State of the European okay. Union addresses that the Commission would look at how the different funds work together. We um, brought together all the DGs, we looked at what was possible, we then produced a handbook, we explained it to within the member states to the different okay. um, actors in the member states of how this works. And today there's been a conference on funding. Uh, I'd just like to say, because I know you're going yeah, to pass to on up, to yeah. the, um, the issue about the private sector. The mm. private sector's involvement is terribly important. Mm. Um, and just to say that we're working rather closely now with um, social partners, um, employers' organisations. We want to launch um, a European-wide initiative later, um, before the summer, mm -hmm. on specific involvement of the private sector, but that is key. Um, mm -hmm. Both employment and self-employment is key for the integration of third country nationals, regardless of how they came. Thank you very much. I mean, the point about kind of the economic costs, there's a, I mean, Europe has to wake up to the harsh realities. If when you think about the demographic changes happening, we're getting older and we haven't got as many young people in the labour market, who's going to pay the tax bill and the welfare bill? And we just need to be really kind of clear about the reality of the economic impact of not introducing more and better migration into the EU. But it's an argument, how do we get you know, a good advertising company across Europe to promote that in a way and get the private sector involved? And on that note, Jürgen, um, over to you. I'm really keen to hear about how, how you made... I mean, what I'm interested in is... Who led it? Was it something that came from within, Siemens? Because obviously what you're doing is really quite interesting. And whether you think other, you know, private sector leaders are up for the, up for the, the kind of the stakes and, and opportunity this presents? Well, I think it came from all over. So, of mm. course, there were top-down initiatives driven by our management board or our supervisory board, but there's also a lot of people in the locations that Siemens operates who, uh -huh. you know, we happen to have a refugee camp just on the other side of the fence. So uh, a lot of our employees are also very engaged in that. But what we looked at from a company perspective and strategically, we looked at what are we actually good at? 
What mm. could we provide that we're good at? And we believe, as a company, that we're pretty good in um, education, in particular in work-based uh, apprenticeship and um, a vocational education. And we also believe that it's one of the most powerful instruments uh, of inclusion. Um, and uh, this works actually in two ways, I believe, inclusion via vocational education. One, if we want to integrate young people from any background, refugees or not, mm. into the world of work, work and hence into society, we better give them employability. Um, that's what I would call inclusion in the narrow sense. But two, if we want to remain competitive as Europe, uh, we also believe we better give our young people employability uh, because we, in the larger sense of inclusion, want to be part of the greater scheme of things as well uh, going forward. So uh, that's um, why we looked at uh, work-based vocational education, uh, which works pretty well through its combination, as you may know, of theory taught in classrooms, of applied learning in training centers, and real-world experience on the job. It, just, it does just that. It provides employability to the learner. And if this uh, can work for everyone, as we claim, why shouldn't it work for refugees too? And we now know it does. Last year, uh, we uh, started a pilot project, uh, a six-month vocational pre-qualification mm -hmm. program for 64 refugees, uh, aged 16 to 20, from, uh, 28, sorry, uh, from seven different countries in four locations across Germany. And we did this in the pursuit of establishing readiness to then take on a regular apprenticeship program as either electrical or mechanical technicians. Throughout the program, uh, no, the participants, sorry, they were selected together with the employment service uh, because we had to look for, you know, status and uh, we also wanted an indication of uh, language uh, proficiency. Uh, we needed uh, at least um, level A2 uh, for a start. Um, and uh, we also based this on an aptitude test to see are we actually selecting the right people into this program. Throughout the program, everyone uh, got intensive German lessons parallel to the subject matter stuff, uh, and we were aiming at a level B1 by the end of the six months, and we achieved it. All refugees were supported by a buddy apprentice mm. selected from the local training center where we uh, ran the program, uh, and this, by the way, was also a great experience for, the, for, the, for our young people to be part of this integration game, great motivation. Uh, we also supplemented the program by social, uh, cultural, and sports uh, events that we did uh, as, uh, as a team with uh, apprentices and, and, and refugees. And for the first two months, we concentrated on soft skills training. For months three and four, we concentrated on the real subject matter and technical expertise. And in the month five and six, we concentrated uh, on the choice of occupation that they would then uh, take forward and also on preparing them for uh, job interviews. At the end of the program, after six months, we had out of those 64 participants, 38 were hired directly into an apprenticeship. Um, 18 of which with our company ourselves, and here I really have to tell you, it's a bit bragging, but uh, we receive 20 applications per apprenticeship position mm -hmm. that we have, mm -hmm. so you can imagine that we are able to really um, take the cream of any age cohort. Uh, we have a very good employer brand, so yeah. getting an inroad into these highly contested mm -hmm. positions is a great sign of success of these refugee learners. Uh, 20, other, uh, uh, 20 other participants uh, got uh, 
an apprenticeship position directly uh, with other uh, companies that we uh, cooperated with. Another 10 uh, chose to seek uh, the next higher level of uh, school education yeah. and went into that. Seven found an internship position, but with the prospect of subsequent employment or apprenticeship, and another nine were still in the selection process with other companies. So we can claim that at least all Mm. 64 got an opportunity. And this exceeded our expectations big time, I must say, and led us to extend the program for this year to 100 uh, uh, apprentices, um, um, refugees, uh, in six locations. While the benefits coming to your cost-benefit uh, component, by the, while the benefits are clear, to me at least, the cost is high. Um, the business case... Uh, however, I believe it's compelling for employers, the quality, productivity, and loyalty uh, of homegrown apprentices uh, pays off in the long run. We know that Siemens has been doing this for 125 years, uh, and we're still not broke. So there must be a positive um, business case. For societies, uh, I believe the business case is imperative, uh, because uh, if we don't, don't do anything, um, we, we will have far higher cost later on. I believe that, uh, coming to your point of employment, I believe employability, a lack of employability is actually worse than a lack of employment um, uh, because it's a social time bomb. Um, and uh, so for, for our uh, vocational pre-qualification program, Siemens received 15%, up to 15% of public funding, depending on the Lender, yeah, Nordrhein-Westfalen was one of the countries, uh, states in Germany, and, um, uh, and we were really grateful for that. Uh, however, if uh, employers provide training beyond their own workforce demands, mm -hmm. like Siemens has in this program, um, then the state will have to provide more and far more significant funds to finance these kinds of programs. And I think we should do that as countries. Now I'm talking as a taxpayer also. Mm. Uh, it's worth it uh, and it works. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's, I mean, it's, it's clear that when you start something like this up, and I know from experience, the unit cost is high because you're doing something new. But actually, if you get it right and you tread the boards effectively, over five years, that unit cost is reduced, absolutely. But more so, if, imagine if the local government had partnered with you in actually um, uh, absorbing some of that cost. The multiplier effect and the numbers would be higher. But that's a question I'm sure people might want to, want to ask. But I think you're absolutely right, that the, the, kind of, um, the consequences of not... If you talk about integration in economic sustainable terms... It is a social time bomb, and we've seen it. If we just look back in history, whether it's New York, London, Barcelona, Paris, etc., we know the, what the costs are of not thinking about the economic uh, uh, imperative of uh, building uh, communities into a mainframe of sustainability because people feel disaffected and they vote differently, or you get discohesion at a, at a city level. Okay. So, as I said to you, a very interesting set of presentations, I hope you found. And it's over to you. To, we've got about 25 minutes, um, and I want to take... A, what, I'm, what I'm saying to you, I want to say to all of you, can you avoid questions which are to the whole panel? Given that we've only got 25 minutes, it isn't going to work, because by the time they've all answered, our time will be up. So pick a person you want the answer to come from, okay, please. And my other plea to you is no speeches and no rhetoric. Questions. If you have a comment, then make a comment very quickly, okay, in respect for others around the room. So, lady here in front, say who you are and who your question is targeted Dania to. Dania Tondini from AVSI Foundation, an Italian NGO. 
I wanted to share a similar experience that we have also to answer, I want to answer, not to question, mm -hmm. to your um, item about the scalability. Mm -hmm. uh, we have an experience with a private company in the restoration uh, sector who make um, vocational training for uh, refugees in Italy. Mm -hmm. And um, we uh, made uh, the coordination and the um, relation with the organization uh, selecting the refugees for the training. Mm -hmm. After the six-month training, four were employed. Mm -hmm. And what is very interesting is that the um, uh, entrepreneur uh, invited 20 of his colleagues uh, with enterprises to show it, to present uh, the experience. So we hope that uh, this uh, example will be followed. I think that what is important is to show that it is possible. And it is important also to have a multi-stakeholder partnership because funding, we have no public funding on that. So we uh, as okay. NGOs rise private funding to support this activity. Sure. You make a val valid point about how do you promote um, good practice and, and its, its scalability, but also its doability um, to a certain extent, where people think in one country it's possible but not in the other. We had some hands up. and Great. So, uh, gentlemen, the lady there in the white jacket and then the gentleman there in the grey jacket. And I'll, I'll come to you as well, I promise. Same point. Say who you are, please, as well. Hello, my name is Sophie McGuinness, and I'm with UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. Mm -hmm. I have a question for Belinda Pike. Um, the question is, uh, we notice that um, there are some member states that don't invest very much money in integration. They get money from the Asylum Migration Integration Funds, and okay. some don't spend much on integration. Do you think more can be done to try and encourage all member states to spend money on integration? Great. Should there be a, you know, like they do for schools in parts of the country, you know, high achieving or low achieving, a balance sheet of countries, who's paying the most and who's paying the least? Just a shame and name. Um, I'm hoping we can actually start naming them um, because I was certainly making the point yesterday to the member states that quite apart from the fact that resources aren't getting to where it's needed, um, it's going to undermine our case in the next MFF when we try to argue that we need more money for integration if, in fact, member states aren't using what, what's already there. Under the current Asylum Migration Integration Fund, there's an agreement that member states have to spend at least 20% of the uh, program, the national program, on integration. All countries agreed to meet that target except for Greece. Um, Greece hasn't spent anything anyway, but their target was 13%, and the agreement was that Greece would also tap into the um, European Social Fund. So it, it's enormously frustrating, um, particularly for cities. Um, Athens yesterday was at the meeting yesterday, that they're not getting the funding. And this year alone, the um, Parliament and the Council agreed to add another 150 million to the funding available for integration. 140 million has gone to the member states. Um, to add to their national programme, so I... But, Belinda, is someone, is someone doing the number crunching to well, find we're getting, out who's well, we're spending getting, what? We're getting the accounts in. This is under shared management, so the, the money's coming in. We can okay. see that some mem most member states, I think there were four where, as far as we can tell, nothing really is happening, but most of them, that they might, might not already be incurring payments because of the way we can spot it in the accounts, but all, they are committing, actions are happening. And the important thing, too, about the, the way AMIS should work 
is it's supposed to be done in partnership, a partnership involving local and regional authorities and civil society, and also there should be a monitoring committee where these issues are being identified. And that's still not happening enough. Um, today there was, I mean, there are people here who've been at the conference that we organised today with um, local and regional authorities as well as the national level and also civil society. Annika might want to say something about that. To keep forcing the pace. I mean, everyone will keep coming. Cities will always come okay. to Brussels and say, please give us the money. And we say, well, actually, the money is in your member state, but it's not being used. Yeah. Now, hopefully, that, that regular meeting you have of the member states could be one on gender item could be how do we become more transparent? Because one of the issues here is the lack of accountability and transparency in this. And actually, what you could do is really publish very publicly actually who is spending what and who's barking the most as a result. You wanted to say something, Christian? Just a very brief comment on this, because, of course, it's important that you measure it. And it's, it's, I, I agree with everything that's said. It's a good question. But it's also a question of how do you spend it? Indeed. Uh, and I think uh, if I look at the, the policy in the Netherlands, we get people first to sign the participation declaration or something like that. Then they get, we get people to, to do a course on integration that they, by the way, have to lend for and then pay for themselves. But, of course, they don't lend or they cannot pay it back. Mm. So it, it's not the only measurement there is. So you have to look I at agree. the policies yeah, themselves. It's not just also. the money spent. It's about the exactly. content of it. Yeah. Absolutely, totally agree. The gentleman at the back in grey, again... Brief, did say, introduce who you are. My name is Apostolos. I have come to this event in personal capacity, and I would like to ask Mr. Bouguion from uh, McKinsey a question, if I may. You can do. Uh, actually, the very interesting slide you showed on the 40 studies you have reviewed that demonstrate that uh, migration does not have an impact on uh, employment in, 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 in the recipient countries. In my view, it lies at the very core of the political debate about migration in Europe mm. right now. So I would like to kindly invite you to elaborate a bit on the 40 studies. Uh, what kind of studies were those and what research question did they address and who was actually doing the research? Well, I can't promise that Jacques can do that because I won't allow him to do that because that will take the whole, uh, whole day. So if I, could, if I could ask you to address the kind of the substantive point about, you know, if you, if you can, um, summate, you know, what, is this absolutely for, for sure? I suppose the question is, is it for real? I think there's a sense of doubt about whether this is actually uh, uh, really possible. Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I think the studies are all, uh, you know, high academics from, uh, you know, the guys from MIT and the like, so I think we didn't take the obscure ones. Mm. Uh, the point is that, again, I, I will go the other way around, which is, in fact, uh, it has an impact. But as I said, there's an impact, not an average, it has an impact on the second generation of migrants. That's the first point I wanted to make, which uh, it's a bit of a paradox. So if you go to France and you're in Paris... In fact, the people that are the more at risk of losing their job is actually people that came with their parents, you know, possibly 30 years ago. So it's actually an interesting discussion. And two, there is a, digit, uh, there, there is a, uh, a migrant divide. In fact, what we find is that the average wage at the same scale measure, all this econometric analysis tells you that you, you, you pay them 30% less. Now, we talk a lot about the woman divide than the salaries. We see the same as well on this mm -hmm. one. So again, at that point, if you have 30% less, the, the, the pressure on the wage it's not that significant. That's the point I wanted to make. Okay, thank you. So, lady in blue, third from the left. Uh, thank you. My name is Margie Waters. I'm from the Commission. I'm from the education part of the Commission. Mm -hmm. I have a question. I think I'd like to address it to the Deputy Mayor. Um, you mentioned, I, I think, early on that uh, the displacement effect on jobs of migrants coming is often on second-generation migrants. That was in the McKinsey presentation. And we see in education that 
the mm. children of migrants, the children of migrant background, are not faring as well in school as the, as the average. And in some countries, you have twice as many children who leave school without a qualification. In some countries, you have three times as many who leave yeah. school without a qualification. So, of course, their, their prospects are blighted. And I'd just like to know from Amsterdam's experience as a city with a very high number of children, of people of migrant background as well as recent refugees, if you have something that you could share about the challenges that you have faced or perhaps whether you've found any solutions in really integrating migrant children in the education system to enable them to have the same chances as others in the, in the city. That's a really Thank good you. point, As you're responding, can you? Because that story, that narrative, is age-old. If you look across Europe, where migrants have, or refugees have been placed, poorest areas, worst schools, awful educational outcomes. That's that's there for the past 50 years. We've seen it, but it's also an urban planning uh, issue and also a cost issue where municipalities choose to put refugees cheapest accommodation, poorest areas. Have you learned from that? Yes, absolutely. Great. Um, Great. Uh, but I've got, I've, we have not found the, the perfect solution yet, of course, because it is an issue also in Amsterdam, but I think we've come, uh, come quite far now uh, by investing in education, by reaching out to the children and their families very early on. Um, I think that we have reduced the number of dropouts significantly. Uh, where we still have an issue, uh, there's also a big difference between boys and girls. Mm. Uh, it's mostly about the boys. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, and uh, there you also you have to uh, address their families when they are still young because the difficult age is 14, 15 years old. What we see then, if we succeed you know, in finishing the, 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 the school, the, doing vocational training or other kinds of education after that, then there is still the issue of entering the labor market. Uh, and I think that there we see that there is a, a discrimination in the labor market uh, that we see at universities and also vocational training, especially the girls doing very well but having a difficult time in entering uh, the labor market. And there I think we need to do sort of the same thing. We have to team up with the employers, with the private sector, to make sure that everybody has the same chances in, uh, in the labor market. But as if going back to the schools, it's about really investing in, in the schools, in the teachers, in the neighborhoods, and being sure that you are there before it goes wrong. Uh, and that, I think, is the most important lesson that we have learned in Amsterdam. It's also a political one, isn't it? Because the, where you choose to invest, if you're going to, it's a political question. You've been able to manage that, obviously. Well, I, I'm from a political party that has invested a lot in education. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, and we benefits. would like to invest even more as we have negotiations okay. for the new government going on. Indeed, I bet. Paul, you wanted to come in on this. Yeah. Uh, I think that question should be in, in, in my hands you will get the best answer because I'm a refugee and I live in Amsterdam. And let me tell, let me point out one thing. What we are talking about is how the society organizes itself mm. to include people. Mm. We forget that the people who came, they also have plans. They also have something to do. And we are not able to give a space to what people say. I'll give you an example. When I came to the Netherlands, I didn't speak Dutch. You understand, the Belgians spoke French in Congo. <laughs> uh, but there is, there is something made, I'm yeah. good at, is to teach. I can teach mathematics, I can teach French, I can teach anything I know I can teach. So I asked a school 
the possibility to teach kids speak French. The parents of the kids went to the direction and asked them, we are good here, we, we, we pay taxes, but we do not agree that the refugee teach our kids. So I told the direction, please give me two months. If they still do not speak French, I stop. After two months, they came to the school, tell the direction, my kids are speaking, sorry, are speaking French. From that moment on, I didn't teach only French, I also taught mathematics. So I'm trying to say here that mm -hmm. if we neglect what people are bringing on the table, we are making the same mistake as the people who are not in this room. Yeah. That's what I wanted to do. No, and you make a really excellent point. I know <laughs> those people are desperate to applaud, but keep that to the, to the end, because that was great. But that is, that's, that's that point that we started with. If we think about integration or the, you know, the, the context in which we find ourselves through an asset-based approach, a strength-based approach, i.e. that actually what you, you have value, and actually, if you spring, if, if you can actually tap into that value, the spring well of real success. But we often miss the argument. Lady here. Oh, sure, absolutely. Please do, please do. There's and that will come to you, I promise. Education or the domino effect, I think, is that if you empower the woman, then you automatically empower her daughter. And if you empower her father, you automatically empower her son. Mm. So if these women or these kids are seeing their parents already integrated, and they're Indeed. aligned with what they're doing in school. Because that's what I see. I see the, the kids, they're very good in, in school, but then they come home and they have a do totally different world. So how do you align the world at home and the world outside? Because I see them, uh, they can be themselves uh, amongst the Belgians, but when they're home, they have the Syrian laws. So how do Absolutely. we find a balance between them? And I, and I try as much as possible to say, whatever you preach in school, try to preach inside your home. So it's, it's really a challenge in that sense. So how do we find this? Yeah. That it goes back to Paul's point, is about how you organize your local society. That you think that shit's school or you know, at work, that's it. You finish the story. But integration is deeper than that. And you need to go into the home place because actually, if, you, if the parents don't have those experiences, the child comes through a very you know, difficult set of predicaments and choices as a result. Lady here at the front and the gentleman at the back, I promise. So. Good evening. Uh, my name is Finita Sibors. Uh, you should say that again, Johan. Finita Sibors from the Free University of Amsterdam. Uh -huh. uh, and I would like to ask a question to Paul. Um, but first of all, I would, would like to say it's really nice to hear to talk about advantages and benefits of migration. Indeed. Because there's a whole negativity bias, I think, about migration and refugees. So that's really cool. Uh, Paul, you talked about a different mindset that's needed. And the questions that I basically have, because there's a distinction between those who implement it and those who are affected by it. So I was wondering, how do you realize this change of mind and okay. practice? Very yeah. difficult question. I'll come back to you, because I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to take the gentleman at the back as well. Again, say who you are and who your questions yes, are. I'm, <coughs> I'm, I'm don't, I'm don't, I don't know if there's a, you know, a bias in this, but I am from Amsterdam also. So I My <laughs> God. <laughs> Have you, have you actually, have you packed out the room? <laughs> You've brought everybody. You, you put a municipal bus on, haven't you, and brought everyone from Amsterdam. Yeah, I, yeah, even a civil servant. I'm paid to be here, sorry. Okay. <laughs> but uh, um, so I have a question for the very uh, interesting uh, contribution from uh, the, uh, Mr. Sieber from, from Siemens. Uh, what would, do you think, what would, what, how could Europe be helpful in, 
in supporting projects that, that you that you have just described you are doing i mean is, is there anything in terms of you know facilitating these processes uh, you know qualifications or recognitions or research innovative things does, mm. uh, how how could europe be, be be helpful in those in that work that you do very good question so let's start and okay let me take the gentleman here the glasses on the third row Uh, thank you very much. My name is Mohammed Rajai Barakat. Uh, you spoke about demographic changes. Uh, don't you think that... Uh, who, are you, who are you targeting your question at? I beg your pardon? Who are you targeting your question at? Uh, for whom it may concern. <laughs> okay, so I will choose, fine, right? Uh, you spoke about uh, demographic changes. And I feel that people here, especially populists, are afraid of that. But don't you think that it's a general phenomena? Uh, you go to Gulf Cooperation Council countries, to Emirates, you have 10% of nationals and 90% of uh, migrants or foreigners. Mm -hmm. uh, you go to Jordan, which is not a very rich country, you have uh, 4 million Jordanians, you have 1 million Iraqis, uh, one, now 1.3 million Syrians, uh, you have 500,000 uh, yeah. uh, Egyptians, you have 200,000 uh, Filipinos and from Indonesia. And, uh, well, don't you think that it's a general phenomenon? It's, it's normal to have this because of globalization. Everybody was for globalization a few years ago, and now we are afraid of it. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. I'm not sure there's a, I mean, there's a question in that. I'm not certain about what the question is, but we'll come to it. So, um, start with yourself first about the really difficult one about mindset change. And then I'll move yeah. to you, Paul. Yeah. Um, you know, when I came to the Netherlands, I've done politics in Congo. I wanted to do politics in the Netherlands. That was a mistake because the culture, they are too uh, different. So, I'm looking a way to change things. I'm at level. And believe me, I'm not going where, peop where I agree with people. In this room, I think I will agree with almost everybody. It's not interesting. What interesting is, is to go and meet those who do not agree with me. Let me tell you something. I used to be a civil servant in the Netherlands, um, trying to make it possible that the sea doesn't go inside. I'm an engineer. When I speak in public and I tell people I used to be a refugee, half of the public want to leave the room. So I change my tactic. I say I used to work for Rex Waterstadt, the very ministry which is, which is, which is doing that you, you can do your business. From that moment, people can give me their wallet because they understand Oh, he's a foreigner, but he's doing a good job for us. So at that time, what I'm trying to say, I stay in an arena to talk to those who do not like me. I do not give up. That is what the most of okay. the migrants, they don't do. Because when it becomes ugly, they leave. Mm. I don't leave. 
That's, that's, yeah, sure, that's you, which is great, and we need more of you. But the substantive point is that many people don't have the confidence that you do, or the resilience because of the circumstances people come from. And I'm not asking you to answer that question, but I think we have to recognise that sometimes it's what you said about organising society. If you're going to get into this game, and you have to, because otherwise Europe's not economically going to fail if you don't have the rate of migration into this, into this lovely uh, uh, you know, union, we won't be able to pay our tax at one level and other things will go all, uh, awry. But in reality, if you're going to get into this game, you actually need to get involved in community development at a very basic level where you enable people to have the resilience and the kind of opportunity that you clearly have. But, you, you know, you represent one aspect of that. So I think it's something that we have to be mindful of, that we have to take it seriously from a kind of support development uh, a point of view. Um, Private sector, really good point. That actually, are you with some sort of chamber of commerce that where you have actually said to the other boys in the club, which because there will be, to say, well, look, this really works. Yeah. And this is I mean, why. The, the question was, what can Europe do? So, I mean, I have the same problem that you addressed earlier. That it's you know member states and then it's local levels of government, and we have to deal with all of them. So, starting with the. Uh, closer uh, bodies, it's what we need from them is clarification on status. Uh, it's uh, allowing especially the young and the, uh, the unaccompanied and what to go to school immediately and don't fuss about, you know, do they have the right entry-level qualifications, etc. So I think we need speed to get them, and that was also to, to your point, Kaiser, to get them uh, in, you know, quickly uh, into the system. Uh, that's one thing that they can do. Finance is the most problematic thing because vocational education, employer-led vocational education, mm. finances itself if you are hiring or preparing your own workforce. If you're doing this like we did in this program, and we, we take on 18 of those people from the pre-qualification into our program, so for them it's an investment well made for us and we're happy to pay for it, and because we know we're, we're investing another 100,000 euros in each one of them before they uh, are uh, graduating from their apprenticeship program, but we know it pays off. We've mm. seen it before, it works. Um, but if we are asked as employers to grab as many people as we can, and run them through programs like these, we need someone who owns them. And I'm not talking reintroduction of slavery, don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, it's uh, really in, in terms of who has the mm. benefit of integrating them into their workforce later. And so we have to find mechanisms. And I hear in Europe particular, there's always a lot of, and many people now dislike me, a lot of talk about, you know, we have to help the small and medium-sized companies. Yes, we do. But don't forget the big ones either, because what we can provide, because we have the training centers, we have the infrastructure, indeed, indeed. we can train for others <coughs> too. But if they are eligible, small companies, eligible to get s subsidies, they can pay that money to the one who provides the training, which in this case would be us. And if, if there are mechanisms uh, that we could find that would, would cater for those needs, uh, because we can do this for altruistic reasons for two years, for three years, and, and we're a big company, but if you want this to multiply, um, and if you look at Germany as the country that's famous for vocational education, mm. the backbone is the small and medium-sized yeah. companies that are running it, not the Siemens's, that's not the right. BMW's, not the Allianz. Yeah? It's, it's others. And so we have to find mechanisms with our local governments or with directed funding from EU institutions that these programs can be ramped up because once they're in full swing, yeah, yeah. they're self-financing. But you, are you hearing... Um, positive noises from other 
company leaders? Oh, I mean, yeah. Have you shared this kind of yeah, story? Yeah. I mean, and a, a, lot lot of, of a lot of companies are doing this and there's also welcome pressure, I would say, from our government, you know, okay, expecting an, a, 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 a contribution yeah, from you know everyone. What occurs to me that you explained about the vocational training thing. Imagine if you, you know, collaborated with the municipality or the central government, right, which has an infrastructure, which already has a ready-made infrastructure for support, that this could actually, the cost could be a, a shared, yeah. but the multiplier effect could be significant. No, absolutely, and... And again, any lost generation that does not receive sure, employability okay. skills will cost much more in the long run. I'm going to take one more question, but I want to ask the question of populism. I mean, obviously, we've had the outcome. Um, not, I don't want to hear what it was like for you, but what did you have to do to, you know, really, in terms of really working hard to get the result that you and others had to contribute to get? Well, um, but first of all, perhaps a comment just on, on the, the issue that the gentleman made. So mm. uh, for Amsterdam, for, he mentioned the Emirates. Huh? So uh, that is a, a, a very interesting society with many foreign workers, <laughs> but, but completely different, I think, to, to most European countries. So if you look at the Netherlands, there are demographic changes. Amsterdam is a very international city, has always been. We have more than 180 nationalities in our city. People are very proud of that. We are almost we are approaching a million inhabitants. Uh, and still people are a bit worried about a couple of thousand refugees. So how come? Uh, That's a bit strange. So Absolutely. numbers apparently are not uh, convincing enough. So I think there you see that the failing of the integration policy, also in the schools, uh, the question that was asked before, uh, that has been going on for about 20 or 30 years, uh, it's now affecting a, a completely different issue, namely having refugees coming in, because we are in general positive to receiving refugees. We've been receiving refugees for hundreds of years. I mean, uh, uh, Portuguese Jews or, or French Catholics, they were all welcome in our city. They are completely integrated, by the way. Uh, and so now we have a new group of ref refugees, but the integration problem was not with refugees, but with people we invited to come to the Netherlands to do the work that we didn't want to do ourselves. So there are two completely different issues that we are addressing more or less in the same way. And I think we also have to be more uh, clear about that yes. and that we have to have a better way of dealing with, uh, with integration. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. Which is, which is not ignoring it and which is not saying that you have to be like an Amsterdammer because an Amsterdammer is Indeed. a diverse person. Absolutely. It just seems like the worst calendar year for it. I mean, obviously you've had the Brexit thing, but then you've got the French elections, the German elections. You couldn't ask for a less clement environment for this conversation. And I don't know how we energise people to actually have, you know, less heat, more light, and actually looking at the benefits uh, in a number of ways. So we look forward to that I hope with, with you know with optimism here at the front very brief comment though if, if you may please a, a question very directly to one of the panelists hello my name is Annika and I'm from social platform and I just had a question so we see a trend of more short-term permits than the more long-term permits of residents and my question is how what are the consequences on integration in relation to businesses' investment, so that would be a question to you, but maybe also a question either to Paul or Tara on, on how you would think or how you, from your community, how people will react to their own investment in a country where they know they might not have the chance to stay for a long time. Okay. Start with you. I mean, clearly, if we do not have a meaningful time with the employee, investment in training them will not 
payback. The break-even point in a regular apprenticeship program comes about two to three years after the graduation. So for us, that would not be of interest. However, turning it to the, to the macroeconomic level, I think it's still interesting to train people even of short term, or even uh, 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 training these people who will eventually go back because if we give them skills, they will carry these skills into their home countries and support nation building there as well. Mm. So I don't think it can be wrong at all in any circumstance to train people when they're here. Good for you. Okay. Which one of you two wants to... Do you want to both take the question? No. Okay. All right. Briefly. Um, I do think when you know that you are not staying in a country, it's difficult to start making friends. So, uh, but in, uh, in order to empower people, when people tell me I'm not going to learn Dutch because I'm not sure I will stay, and they ask me what did the language does to you as a language, because I used to go to university in French, so I think a different way. When I start speaking Dutch, I become pragmatic. <laughs> so, um, the language can change something in the way you are looking at things. So, I tell people that, and they agree, and then they go to school. Excellent. No, out of experience, I think in Belgium you have two types of uh, visa uh, residencies. You have the one-year residency that is renewed every year. I'm speaking from the refugee part. And then you have the five-year, which is the permanent one. And indeed, when I do talk to refugees who have the one-year one, they're living on the edge because they don't know if they yeah. might leave any time. Um, but luckily, um, the Syrians are like, yo, we are needed, nobody's going to kick us out. But you have other nationalities who are actually afraid to leave. Mm. So it does affect, of course, because if you know that you're staying, then you're going to build your and start your dream. So it does have an effect uh, unconsciously, and whether you like it, it or not. Because yeah, it's, it's human nature, because actually the people we're talking about are people like us in this room. And that's what we sometimes forget, that people like people like us, uh, ultimately. Gentlemen here, very briefly, I'm going to close off uh, after this. Uh, thank you. My name is uh, Min Fu Li from the Chinese Mission, mm -hmm. based here. And uh, thank you, Jack, for your uh, introduction of the report. Although you said it's not uh, rosy, but I think uh, it's rosy that many politicians and ordinary people think. But I think the important thing is to change this kind of uh, uh, benefits thinking into the politicians and ordinary people. Because many politicians and ordinary people do not think so. They cannot uh, see the benefits of those migrants. So I think uh, Jorgen uh, Siegel's point is very important and gives those migrants uh, the skills. But I have a question to you. For, the, for example, in your country, Germany, how can you ensure the uh, small companies and small enterprises to train them with uh, some general skills? Uh, because for general skills, it's very easy to be poached by other enterprises. If they just invest in training, then uh, those migrants are very fluent. Yeah. They can jump from one enterprise to another quickly. Okay. So right. how can you ensure uh, can the I training answer? is beneficial? Yeah. Yeah. Can I answer your question with talking about China? Uh, because we're trying to convince our own regional company to ramp, ramp up vocational training in China. And I hear exactly what you were saying. Because the problem is, and that's the difference between countries like Germany and countries that do not have a vocational training system, a work-based one, that 
if you're going into one of those new spaces, you have a, what I would call a first mover disadvantage. Because if you are training mm. people, nobody else does, you'll be poached. All, you know, your competitors will outprice you on graduation day immediately. Um, so that's why we also need ramp up support in those countries because you, you have to ring fence the investments of the employers to get the system started. But in Germany, if Daimler steals one of my apprentices on graduation day, I grab one of theirs. It's very easy. Yeah, so there's no, there's no uh, danger because everybody in our country does it. Small, medium-sized, large, everybody is engaged. Uh, and so uh, uh, that's why the system Indeed. is stable. And your point is it's a market. It's a marketplace anyway. And so supply and demand forces on some occasions work. Um, I'm going to conclude now. And I hope that you've found this effective. But I wanted to ask, I want to end with Yara, actually, because we've talked about the various levels at which... We need to deal with this. There's obviously the institutional, political, there's the private sector. But what's heartening and what's really important is about the, the sense of individual agency. Individual agency, and this is absolutely one of the kind of key uh, lock, you know, lock turning moments where you have someone that actually is able to reach out and create something. What I wanted to know from you is that actually you've done something bold and brave in uh, using social media, uh, which is ever, the, ever thus in terms of uh, propelling it. Are the sisters and brothers out there helping you? Are you getting a lot of support from the other sisters, whether they're white or ethnic minority? Are the restaurateurs helping you out on this? Not really, no. Ah, I but, thought it was going to be a positive message to I, I, I don't need them. I, I don't think we need them. I think it's... Oh, I'm getting uh, support from the locals, from Indeed. the Belgians themselves. And sure. I think that's the beauty of it. Like, someone that is, like, I don't know, living in a, a countryside that calls me and, like, I'm turning 80 and I want the Syrian ladies to cook for me. And... This brings so much joy to my heart and says, yeah, we're all coming in. Get the house ready. So it's really this, this uh, very Excellent. human uh, touch that we're touching. And that's what I want. It's not just to feed people, but it's to get to people's heart. And a lot of people say, we want you on site because we want to hear your stories. We want to know who you are, where you come from. And that is it. How do we tell stories by serving the food? Indeed. That's why I wanted to end with you. Well done. Thank you. Let's, let's support all our... Thank you. You've been a really good panel. You've stuck to time and you've been a good audience. I hope that, as I said, I hope we, we've enabled you to kind of debate the right issues, connect the dots, but also inspire you, uh, I hope, in small ways to change your thinking or what you need to influence when you walk out of this room. Thank you all very much. And there's a reception at the back there on the left-hand side.